The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from John 16, 1 through 15. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Kimberly, for reading that passage of Scripture. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church. I haven't had a pleasure of meeting you. My name is Paul Lim, and I serve here as a scholar in residence, having done that for the last eight years, and then also um, working at Vanderbilt University as a professor in the area of history of Christianity. So, welcome. Um, Today is St. Patrick's Day. Um, That name might be more relevant to people who are going to go pop crawling or something later on today, but I want to actually remind us that before anything else, and aside from other things, St. Patrick was a 5th century Roman British missionary who brought Christianity to Ireland. So he's known as the Apostle of Ireland. Among other things, he's known for his evangelistic zeal to explain the mystery of the Trinity. He used the analogy of the shamrock clover with three parts, each part representing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Although subsequent perspectives have found problems with the patron saint of Ireland's analogy of the Trinity, especially with the shamrock clover, it is unequivocally the case that Christian truth had to find practical outworkings in his daily life, so was in ours, in the case of St. Patrick, in mission and evangelism. So let's try to remember the word practical for the rest of our time together, shall we? So let's then travel to 17th century England. So 5th century Ireland to 17th century England actually is the period that I devoted the last 30 years of my life with special attention to this group of hotter sort of Protestants called the English Puritans who are committed Calvinists and agreed with Augustine, Calvin, and others 
that humankind suffered a cataclysmic fall so that the only way that we can be redeemed from ourselves was by the work of someone outside of ourselves. One such Christian was John Calvin, who lived between 1616 and 83. I've written about him in all my books, and I find him to be my, I find him to be my favorite go-to person regarding matters, matters of how to respond to God's infallible grace of justification, sanctification, and glorification. In 1657, he wrote this book called Of Communion with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, each person distinctly in love, grace, and consolation. Written at the height of his career as president of Oxford University, John Owen stressed the love of God, the grace of Christ, and the consolation of the Holy Spirit. So what exactly does that mean? Let's take a look. This is a lengthy treatise, and we won't have any time to delve into it in depth, but it can be boiled down to these three points. Father as in love, Son as in grace, and the Holy Spirit as in consolation. His starting biblical text is 1 John 1, 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Naturally, this is impossible, Owen writes, because God is light and we are darkness. God is love and we are enmity. Our first interest in God was lost by sin so that there was left unto us in ourselves no possibility of a recovery, and we have deprived ourselves of all power for a return. Then the only possibility of our return and re reconciliation was purchased and made accessible to us through the life and work of Jesus, the Redeemer. Before we actually jump to the conclusion, Owen cites this uh, Roman philosopher uh, by the name of Cicero, who said that there could be no possibility of friendship between God and human beings because of these twin gaps between God and us, ontological and moral. Ontological in that God is God and we're not, very simply put. Moral in that God is holy and we're not. So then who or what could bridge that evident chasm or gap between God and sinfulness of humans? This is where Owen makes a Christological turn and Cicero does not. Only in the one who can be both divine and human for Owen, while he does not nullify the saving work of God in the Old Testament economy, he does say that the most definitive demonstration and revelation of God's identity and economy, or who God is and what God does, became most clearly manifest only in the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And here is what I think Owen is very helpful. He maintains rightly that the only way to properly appropriate the life and work of Jesus is through the Holy Spirit, not through human reasoning or learning or wisdom. Wherever you may have gone to school or are going to school right now, none of it actually matters at the end. What I find fascinating is that Owen maintained that the best way to understand the Holy Spirit's communion with the believer can be summed up in one word. Ready? consolation. Consolation. He noted elsewhere that the work of the Holy Spirit upon the unbelieving world was convincement. Yes, that's a new word for us, but was in circulation in 17th century England, especially among the Quakers who argued that the Holy Spirit convinces us of our wayward situation before he convicts us of that reality and then converts us to God's way of looking at life. Converts us to God's way of looking at life. 
For the believers, then, it is the consolation of the Holy Spirit for those who are afflicted, saddened by the ways of the world, and equally saddened by the lack of sweetness of their communion with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit truly offers a type of consolation that nothing else can offer. The Holy Spirit offers the type of consolation that nothing else can offer. Let me illustrate that by talking briefly about this contemporary philosopher that I found very interesting these days. Her name is Olivia Rodrigo. I was teaching recently in a class, and one of my students from Vanderbilt said, uh, I was telling them that how much I like the music of U2 and other groups from the 80s and 90s, and one of them said, Professor, you ought to listen to her. And I said, who's that? And she said, Olivia Rodrigo. I had never heard of her until about three weeks ago, and then I've been listening to her music ever since. So, <laughs> one song that I find really interesting, I don't listen to her, but it's a song called Driver's License. Some of you are like, oh gosh, all right, I love that song. It was sad, it was sad, and there was what I would call universal resonance of our stories, broken, marred, and yes, sadly, just there. She wrote, I just got my, I got my driver's license last week, just like we always talked about, because you were so excited for me to finally drive up to your house, but today I drove through the suburbs crying because you weren't around. This word gets really profound, and you're probably with that blonde girl who was always made me doubt. She's so much older than me. She's everything I'm insecure about. Yea, today I dro drove through the suburbs because how could I ever love someone else? She ends by saying these words. I know we weren't perfect, but I never felt this way for no one, and I just can't imagine how you could be so okay now that I'm gone because you didn't mention what you wrote in that song about me because you said forever, now I drive alone past your street. Yeah, you said forever, now I drive alone past your street. You said forever, now I drive alone past your street. Ms. Rodrigo is only 21, but her music has captured the hearts of so many older and younger folks because of the universal resonance of sadness of life unfulfilled, broken promises, shattered dreams now pretending as realities. Beloved, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? That sort of universal resonance of something gone wrong and how do we get back to whatever it is that we believe we have lost. So from St. Patrick to Owen to Olivia Rodrigo, you might be asking, Paul, are we ever going to get to the text? I'm so glad you asked, so let's get right to it. The basic thesis of today's sermon is that the Holy Spirit offers consolation like no other. Let's take a deep look at what the Spirit has to say to us through the pages of sacred scripture that was read for us, which he inspired and helped inscripturate through the beloved Apostle John. There are three points regarding the Holy Spirit's consolation, and they are as follows. The Holy Spirit offers consolation for us in the way we think about and make sense of, one, ethics, two, economics, three, eschatology. And you're sitting there thinking, that's got to be a Houdini act because I see nothing about ethics, nothing about economics, nothing about eschatology from our text. So you ready? Let's go, because I think they're right there for us to see. So in this text, Jesus is continuing his conversation uh, with his beloved disciples, 12 of them, as they're celebrating the, the Jewish Passover. And he's really kind of discoursing with them about the future realities that they have no ideas about. And in fact, they're hearing things about departure, they're things, hearing things about maybe death, and they're understandably scared and perplexed and confused. 
Jesus continues in this kind of, and he's with his beloved disciples, and they were confused because Jesus is now intensely and intentionally talking about his departure. He also presents a stark contrast of responses to Jesus' identity and activity. Notice here in verses 1 through 7, all this I've told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue, out of the religious communities. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they're offering a service to God. Sounds very macabre. They will do such things because they have not known the Father nor me. I've told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So what just happened here? Either Jesus stays and the Holy Spirit does not come, which is not the outcome Jesus thinks is optimal for the community of the believers, or as he plans, Jesus departs and the Holy Spirit arrives which is the desired and destined outcome that the Father and the Son in their eternal love and plan had devised. So he's kind of telling them these things. When the Spirit of Consoler comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about these three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment, a.k.a. ethics, economics, and eschatology. So the first point is ethics. The Holy Spirit will provide consolation to the believers regarding ethics. And we see that in verse 9. Let's take a look. It says, we people don't believe in me. Now let's think about this. It says the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world or convince the world of these three things. One, sin because the world, people, don't believe in me. So what is ethics? What is sin? Well, let's talk about sin. The essence of sin is not is not a flagrant behavioral activity or behavioral violence. It is a matter of simply disregarding the Word of God. Sin is not some kind of outlandish behavior. It is simply and fundamentally disregarding the Word of God or flatly denying the relevance and reality of the identity of Jesus to be the barometer of right and wrong. Did God really say? We hear those words in Genesis chapter 3. That was the primordial language of temptation. The tempter comes by way of a serpent, and the first question that the tempter asked of Eve and Adam subsequently is, did God really say these things? And temptation then bore full fruit in sin. So skepticism bears fruit in active repudiation. Adam and Eve did not ultimately believe in God. They kind of equivocate, but ultimately then they end up denying the relevance and reality of the Word of God for their life. Our first parents believed their interpretation of reality to be truer and more reliable than what God has said about God himself and Adam and Eve themselves. So how will the Holy Spirit provide consolation for the believers? Our world is confused about who we are, that is anthropology. Our world is confused about whom to trust, that is, theology. Our world is confused about how to know anything, that is, epistemology. Jesus is saying that the world is and will continue to be in the wrong side of anthropology, theology, and epistemology because people do not believe in me. 
in the way we ultimately think about right and wrong. Right and wrong in terms of who we are, who God is, and how we know anything. Jesus is here making a huge claim, isn't he? He says, there will be, I will, the Holy Spirit will come and he will divide people between those who believe in me and those who do not. And this is a kind of uncomfortable claim for some people who care deeply about not offending our neighbors. And that actually includes me as well. So these words are very sobering and very serious, but also comforting and providing the kind of consolation that we don't think it can. Since people, who do not, since people do not believe in Jesus as to who he is and what he did and does, and how can we come to know ourselves in God through Jesus? It is ultimately about ethics, the field of human inquiry that deals with what is right and what is wrong. Jesus is saying that people do not believe in me in what I have to say about myself, what I have to say about you, what I have to say about the society, and what I have to say about the Savior and the shape of salvations. And he says, that is who I am. So Jesus has the audacity and authority to claim that upon himself and provides the answer in verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So he calls the spirit, the Holy Spirit, as the spirit of truth. And then the function of the spirit, the Holy Spirit, is to guide people into all the truth, thereby providing the consolation. That in case you're confused, in case you're disconsolate, in case you're really perplexed, in case you're saddened, the, the Lord who's about to depart from this world tells his followers and tells us in, con, in, in continuity that the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth, therefore providing the consolation regarding the world of ethics. We find ourselves in a deep ethical quandary. The Holy Spirit provides the consolation of Jesus as he leads us into the pathway of believing him to be the provider of truth regarding what is right and desirable as opposed to wrong and undesirable. That leads me to my second point, economics. We see that actually in verse 10. Jesus says when the advocate comes, he'll prove the world to be in the wrong about righteousness. How is this related to economics? Let me show you. Did you know that the word economics comes from the Greek word oikonomia? And the word oikonomia literally means managing household affairs. Okay, so from that word oikonomia, we get the word economics. I would assume that the vast majority of us listening and watching right now, when you hear the word economics, the last thing you're thinking about is God. When you think about economics, you think about the New York Stock Exchange or some kind of different indices and, and the financial kind of matters, and they're not unrelated, so let me kind of share with you why Jesus is providing, through the Holy Spirit, consolation regarding our perspective on ethics. Ready? Imagine a store that you go to that you like, and you go to your Kroger or Publix or Trader Joe's or um, what is that other place that cool people... Yeah, you know, Whole Foods, thank you. Like a place I don't go to, so I can't, but it's, I said, that's where all the cool people go and I don't go. But like, okay, take your choice, take your pick of the stores that you go to, okay? At Target as opposed to, I don't know, some other department store that, um, whatever, right? Okay, Dillard's, okay? And, and, and Saks Fifth Avenue, what? You go to these stores that you like shopping at, you walk into the store and you find some really weird phenomenon. That is, you go to the store, there are lots of people shopping, but there's nobody at the cash register. No one. 
You look around, you think you're mistaken, so you go from Whole Foods to Dillard's, and they're the same thing. You go from Dillard's to Trader Joe's, all within a half mile of Green Hills, and you find like nobody is at the cash register. Further perplexing, you go to each of these stores to ask if there's a manager in the store, there's no manager. All right, what am I describing? It's right here because Jesus says the world will, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. Ah, Jesus is talking about the absence problem, his bodily absence, and the world's lack of an inability to perceive the presence of God the Father and God the Son. It is actually analogical to go, you going to a store, me going to a store, and there is no one that I can pay the money to. That there is no one in the store. What are you likely to do? You're going to assume a new mode of being in the world. Because there's no cashiers, there's no managers, yet there are goods. You're going to look around and see people like, okay, there is Paul Furry and Aaron Creasy Furry. They're good, upstanding citizens of the world. And they're at Kroger and they're at Whole Foods. They have these bags of groceries and not seeing anyone at the cash register and following the people who are going ahead of them, they're going to walk out of the store without what? Paying. Further emboldened, they go to Dillard's and they realize that same thing is happening. People are walking out the stores with their suits and dresses and shoes and whatnot and, and walking out without paying. And you say, that is odd, but everyone else is doing it, so I guess that's about right, so I'm going to follow suit. You see what I mean? And so what am I describing here? I'm describing a world of economy where there is no one in charge. Adam Smith by, you know, started by talking about the invisible hand. He was definitely talking about God's invisible hand, but now we have come to our economic situations where we learn that the invisible hand means it's the invisible hand of the economic forces that are going to and fro. And as I was introduced, as I was an undergraduate at Yale University in 1986, intro to economics, the professor said, you know what, there's nobody here and there's nothing around, only the invisible hand. And I wasn't a Christian. I said, oh, that must be right. Only later on did I realize that Adam Smith and his, you know, Wealth of the Nations, he was actually talking about the invisible providential guidance of God. And yet we have come to assume that the Father and the Son, they're not here because they're not invisible. They're, they are invisible. They are not visible to us. So you and I continue to go to Kroger's and Trader Joe's and Dillard's and Macy's and walk out of the stores without paying because there's no one else around. You see, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that I'm going to, through my Holy Spirit, I'm going to provide you this consolation about your economic perspective because so many people assume that I'm not around. There's no manager around. There's no shopkeeper around. So they're going to continue to plunder this world of my own resources. And yet I am telling you, my beloved, my followers, I want you to assume a different mode of thinking about economics about what is right and what is good and what is desirable, how the economy determines what is true and, and what not. Let me illustrate it this way. Until about 15 years ago, I never really heard the word follower. You see what I mean? And now, as I use the word follower just now, what comes to your mind? I think what comes to your mind, as it comes to my mind, is this question in the, in the form of a question. How many followers do you have? I was asked recently as we were being kind of, you know, talked about how to market ourselves as professors, and one of the questions that this consultant asked all of us in the room was, how many followers do you have? And we looked around, we looked around and I said, 
I got about 10. How many do you have? Like about 15. I got, oh, I got 250. And then in that kind of brief exchange, we're able to kind of size each other up, okay, depending on how many followers. You see what I mean is that numbers determine human's worth. And Jesus is saying, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to actually tell you that that economy of devaluing human worth by your net worth or how many followers you got is not the way of shalom. It's not the way of the Lord of the rings. The way of the Lord of Eden is to value each person according to their fundamental imago Dei. The fact that, and so here, you could imagine constructing your life with this conviction that there is no one here to guide you or supervise your project of life. You will feel lonely for sure. But also you will then design all of your household affairs, aka economics, with no divine presence in mind. Here David Brooks, a New York Times columnist, and the heavy metal band Metallica are helpful to illustrate what I mean. David Brooks wrote this article called Kicking the Secularist Habit in the Atlantic back in the March 2003. You know, when people quote the Atlantic, they sound really intellectual. I don't read the Atlantic. I read people who read the Atlantic as in, okay, I usually read the ESPN.com, but that's just for your worth. His main thesis, as I read, and I actually read this one to prove the point, is that what makes one a secularist is not necessarily marked by some kind of unchecked hedonism or reckless sense of life. More than anything else, to be secular, according to David Brooks, means to design and construct one's life as if there is no one transcendent here or there is nothing beyond this life. As you know, the word seculum, the word secular, comes from the Latin word seculum, which means strictly defined as pertaining only to this world. Living your life as if this merry-go-round, all we got, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years of merry-go-round is all there is to our existence. That is what it means to be secular, right? It's not some kind of hedonism or defiance of the law. So many of us live as Christian secularists. We say we believe in Christ, but he's basically to help our life here and now only so we are basically Christian secularists, or are we? Think of Metallica's hit song, Enter Sandman, which is a popular song to play in baseball, football games to scare the other team because now here enters a Sandman. Could be Mariano Rivera or whoever else. As you listen to the lyrics of the song, however, one thing becomes clear. All you're left with here, uh, with all you're left with where both the father and son are gone is the entrance of Sandman who might take children away at night. So I'm asking us, who governs your economics in this life? The Holy Spirit convinces and convicts the world of its way of governing its economic decisions and policies without regard of the Father and the Son. What about you? What about me? The Holy Spirit consoles those whose life perspective goes beyond this world and tells us that you're not making a mistake. I am with you and I'm telling you what is yet to come. That is opening a vista of life, desires, and designs beyond this world. That leads us to the third and the final point, eschatology. We see that in verse 11, where Jesus says, when the advocate comes, he'll prove the world to be in the wrong about judgment. Eschatology is a word that relates to the doctrine of last things that are yet to come, but that are already here. Judgment, because Jesus says the prince of this world stands condemned already. If you actually listen to what and reread what Jesus actually has said as John recorded for us, you will notice this audacious, cool, and calm with which Jesus refers to Satan 
as standing condemned already. He has yet to suffer his worst and least expected blow at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and yet Jesus spoke of it as an accomplished fact. So Jesus, as who was both divine and human, knowing not only the present past, present and the past, but also the future, speaks into the fate of this prince of this world, Satan, as a defeated foe and condemned foe. How can this be? Because as we look around the prince of this world today, it seems as if he's standing all right, and he's standing and dancing and prowling around, devouring. So isn't Jesus sorely misguided? And you know, as I've been engaged in different ways of evangelism and cultural apologetics, this point seems really hard to kind of demonstrate because many of my friends who are skeptics and scoffers will say, look, Jesus doesn't seem to be in control at all of this world. Look at this world. It is prancing and prowling, and it's going great, growing gangbusters without God. Is that really right? Think with me about D-Day in World War II. On June 6, 1944, the Western Allied forces dealt the greatest blow of the war up to that point when they landed on the beaches of Normandy. Some of you have been there. It's a beautiful and spectacular and breathtaking sight, led by General Dwight D. Eisenhower. That victory just about ensured the ultimate outcome, as we know from history. They didn't know it at the time. After suffering the loss of about 4,700 men, which was about 13% of all in Normandy among the Allied forces, they took control and claimed victory. We can look back at Normandy as the D-Day. There is also an unmistakable connection between the D-Day of June 6, 1944, and the V-Day, as in victory, of May 8, 1945. Victory in Europe Day celebrated each day as, a, as each year as a finalization of the dreams and desires of those who wanted a world rid of the Nazi regime and all of its pretensions and predatory devilry. So in this sense, the prince of this world stands condemned because the D-Day among Christians is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus defeated the foes of God, crushed the head of the serpent, as we hear often in our liturgies, and dealt the death blows to the prince of this world who, as I'm sure, was absolutely convinced that when Jesus died and gave of his spirit, he thought he won. He thought that he achieved his greatest victory, but he was completely misguided, sorely mistaken. The V-Day for the Christian community is not here yet, although its effects are already felt among us. Where, you might ask, where can we feel the effects of Jesus' D-Day already uh, kind of in our community, in our world. Here I want to refer you and all of us to the wisdom of a refugee pastor who left this country when he was in his 20s and never got to go back to his homeland. When he was asked, where do we see the kingly rule of Christ most clearly? He answered, we see the kingly rule of Christ most clearly. In fact, only in the church as the body of Christ allows the Christ, Christ ahead to rule and govern in mercy and grace and love in such a way that its members are willing to follow this king in life and in death, the call and rule of their only comfort and consolation. That refugee pastor being John Calvin. Beloved, we're far from home, but closer than you think also. Although we are already in some measures experienced the effects of Christ the king, the eschatological king whose reign is already and not yet. When we look around and see the ravaging effects of the fall, we hear things like about the seven suicides in this small town, college town in Massachusetts, 
called Worcester Polytechnic Institute laid a series of self-killing seven student deaths in eight months in 2021 that captured the headlines of New York Times and WAPO and other media outlets, a mental health crisis that is not showing any signs of slowing down. I've been at Vanderbilt for 18 years, 18 wonderful years, and I remember beginning my career where I didn't really hear much about mental health concerns or prescription, you know, the, whatever prescription medicine that many of the students were taking, there was more anomalous. Now it is very, very common indeed. So that's what we have. So many of our teenagers and young adults are lonely. I can probably be, I'm sure I'm talking about you and me in the room, not just among the young. In the UK, there is a government officer named Minister for Loneliness. Some of you probably knew that. And the same thing goes for Japan. They both have ministries for loneliness for their citizens, and that's our world perspective. In other words, material affluence, because both the UK and Japan are advanced nations and developed countries, does not mean elimination of loneliness, alienation, and isolation. As this Korean-German philosopher Byung-Chul Han made clear in his book, Burnout Society, we in our age are dominated by social media, so more people than ever before are feeling the collaterally damaging effects of being left out. Friends, we, uh, we the church have a lot of work to do. But first of all, let's soak in the reality of the consolation of the Holy Spirit. You're not alone. I'm right here with you. Come join me as the Holy Spirit calls us to this global, universal, cosmic restoration project. It's already at work, but not yet completed. Come and seek the solution to your questions of ethics, economics, and eschatology in Christ and Him alone. And we will do so as we come to the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Heavenly Father, We thank you that you did not leave us alone. We thank you that you have come to us in the incarnation of the eternal word of God, the one and only son of God in human clothing, human body and soul. And as he departed, he sent that Holy Spirit, the other, the advocate, our counselor, our comforter, our consolation. We thank you that in the leading of the Holy Spirit, we find the right perspective regarding what is right and wrong in ethics, how to govern our life as we experience that the Father and the Son are not physically and visibly with us in our economics, but also as in how we desire the kingdom of God in our eschatology. Thank you for these words that are written for us in the Gospel of John. As I've sought to explain and deliver it, uh, for your people, dear Lord. If some of the words are stumbling blocks for them, please remove them, except for the stumbling block of the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we come to your table now, may you bring us to yourself in such a way that we will experience the saving and living reality as we drink and eat and taste the goodness of God in Christ. In your name we pray, amen.